I think we're witnessing a process which is an assault. And um, it calls on all of us who care about international law to push back because I think the outcome is unclear. Whether the order is imperiled, I think, I think, I think the answer is no, it's not imperiled. I think things are changing. And I think they were changing before Trump. We're at a turning point. Um, and it's very hard to know which direction it's going to go. I think that we're certainly at a stage um, where we have, if you like, the car in reverse. Many of us have been critical, and I think uh, the chickens have come home to roost. I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the headlines. headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another edition of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is Cal Raustiala and Catherine Amirfar. In our first episode, we heard from professors Harold Koh, Ona Hathaway, and Dapo Akande on the current state and the future of the international order. I think one thing we've heard consistently is the sense that we're at a turning point, a discernible historical moment. Yes, it's what's led us to pose the question, is the post-World War II international legal system being dismantled? So in the second episode, we posed the same meta question to two different speakers with quite different assessments. First, we'll be hearing from Professor Jose Alvarez, the Herbert and Rose Rubin Professor of International Law at New York University School of Law and former president of the American Society of International Law. I've always thought that the study of international organizations shouldn't be confused with its celebration. In fact, a few years back when I was president of ASIL, I distributed to some shock in the room 50 ways international law hurts our lives as a sort of a response to the 100 ways that the society uh, had distributed concerning how international law mostly positively affects uh, everything. And it reflects the view that I think is being challenged now, which is that the more international organizations, the more international courts, the more international law that we throw at anything, the better. And I think many of us have been critical, and I think uh, the chickens have come home to roost. And there are, I think, at least five major reasons. One is that multilateralism has had governance gaps. That is, there are things that international law never seem to get around to governing that now cause a lot of people anxiety and injury. That includes who governs, that is, internationally uh, and formally, the Internet. Uh, the privacy issues, the espionage issues, the interference with elections, that uh, that kind of technology has arisen is not governed by multilateral institutions. Uh, and uh, there are other things as well. So who governs the uh, lowest common denominator solutions that we have to free trade and capital flows, for example? That is, we're very keen on encouraging free trade and capital flows, but the negative consequences of when those flows occur has never been something that international law has done very well at, uh, at elevating, and that includes environmental standards as well as labor standards. There is no global governance when it comes to income inequality. Yes, there's been uh, tremendous growth on GDP around the world, some of which you could attribute to international law and its institutions, but the gap 
uh, between the very poor and the very rich within each nation, as well as the gap between the poorest of some uh, of the poorest states and the rich 1% of the richest countries has never been wider. And there's lack of attention to issues like professional ethics. The professional ethics of our international arbitrators, our own judges, including those of the ICJ. Where is the code of professional responsibility that is supposed to govern international lawyers and their conflicts of interest? So that's the first sort of governance gap. The second is elites are not us. That is, there's resentments sometimes based on class, but often based on expertise, and David Kennedy and others have written a very uh, interesting pieces on the fact that expertise includes a narrowing idea, and that there are some experts that should not be listened to, and certainly some experts that don't have a comprehensive vision of what their expertise would suggest. And this kind of critique of global elites are not us cuts across the left and the right in this country. It includes criticisms of multinational corporations, of NGOs, of UN peacekeepers, and even of central banks, for example. Trans, uh, transnational networks are also included in this. A third challenge is a very familiar one. Uh, President Trump evokes it, but it's still a familiar one, and that is the, uh, the misinformation uh, and the contribution of social media to it, the fake news, the, the, the gap between facts and reality, and how technology has made uh, telling the difference between reality and, uh, and fake news uh, a real challenge for people. The fourth is what I would say is, is, is not something new to our age, but perhaps a reminder that we've always had historical contestations, that is cyclical uh, perspectives in history. Sovereignty always lashes back when threatened. Uh, and so uh, when we have democracy spreading around the world, you shouldn't be surprised that democratic deficits are perceived more often uh, between vertical uh, uh, assertions of power uh, by uh, global elites from the top, whether it's the UN or other international organizations, forms of global governance that don't quite match what democratic legislatures from below would want. And so we also have uh, clashes historically, not just between democracies and de democratic deficits, not just between sovereigns and those who would challenge sovereigns, but between uh, pro and anti-market forces throughout history. And the last is the very mistakes made by multilateral regimes and institutions. International law, uh, international organizations, that is, have made considerable mistakes, some very visible ones. This includes corruption by representatives to international organizations. It turns out that UN peacekeepers rape. It also turns out that they spread cholera in Haiti. It turns out that when the IMF decided for quite some time to do economic development, it followed perhaps erroneous models, sometimes called the Washington Consensus Model and now the post-Washington Consensus Model, and perhaps neither really encourages uniformly economic de uh, development in all cultures, in all places, and at all times. And what makes all of these mistakes worse is that international law has not made any of these organizations accountable. Now, those are very interesting takes, all of which 
seem to be, uh, or almost all of which, internal to the world of international law. I want to come back to them, but I first want to press you on, you mentioned President Trump only in passing. I think many people would, would identify if asked the question of why do we see this transformation, whatever the nature of the transformation in the international order today, why are we witnessing it, they would finger President Trump as the primary causal factor. You did not. So I just want to press you on that. So what is his role and, and how significant do you think the Trump administration is to, to this phenomenon? Obviously, there's great significance to pulling away from the Paris Climate Accord, from pulling away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, from threatening NAFTA uh, and all the other ways he seems to threaten the human rights regimes, including by just cozying up to authoritarian regimes. But I, I, I have a feeling that it's not just about Trump. Because if that's all it was, then once he's gone from the scene, uh, these challenges to multilateralism would disappear. And I don't quite believe that. I think the challenges are appearing uh, from many, many parts of our own society, as well as others. You just have to look at election results in Europe and Brexit and other uh, resentments to international organizations, including by, say, uh, African Union uh, members to the International Criminal Court. There is a backlash to multilateralism that extends beyond Trump, which makes me think that this is not just a short-term crisis that will disappear once Trump disappears, which, in my view, should be soon. But that's irrelevant to the bigger challenge. That is, I don't think we can quite confidently predict that multilateralism will make a strong cutback and everything will be the same once Trump disappears. Now, when you talk about a backlash to multilateralism, do you see, I can imagine two, two different responses. One would be a retreat to national autarky, to, to focusing on, on the national interest, America first, France first, whatever the version might be. But the other might be an embrace of a different form of international law and global governance, multi-stakeholderism, involving NGOs, allowing civil society a greater role. Do you think those are both occurring at once, or how, do you, how would you compare those two tendencies? Once you go beyond the Trump administration, then I think you see a little bit of everything. So uh, Republicans in Congress, for example, reacted to uh, Trump's withdrawal from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, by saying we can just go with bilateral or that is bilateral investment treaties with the 11 countries involved. Uh, others would say, including in Africa, that the answer to the international criminal courts problem is to provide an Africa regional specific international criminal court. And defenders of unilateralism have sometimes included those who would espouse international law's goals. So that, for example, unilateral action by the United States with respect to extraterritorial application of the Sherman Act encouraged the EU uh, to adopt something quite similar with respect to their own aviation emissions standards. Uh, the U.S. unilateralism on Foreign Corrupt Practices Act encouraged a worldwide trend that I think most people think is positive against uh, corruption around the world. And the unilateral trade actions through 301 
provided the basic grist for the mill in 1994 when we transformed into the WTO. So I'm not one to suggest that there isn't room for bilateral forms of international cooperation, including treaties or regional organizations or plurilateralism of various kinds or even unilateralism. My concern with the current state of play is when it turns not into the close scrutiny of how those things could actually promote our own national security goals, as well as the the goals the international community would espouse. But when we just do it out of chaos, when we do it in response to populist uh, revolts without closely scrutinizing what the alternatives are, and by dismissing those with knowledge on the premise that they're either elites or experts. We've also had our question challenged when we spoke with Jack Goldsmith, the Henry Shattuck Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and veteran of the U.S. government in a number of capacities, including at the Office of Legal Counsel and as legal advisor to the General Counsel of the Department of Defense. I'm just going to question the question a little bit because I'm not sure what the international order is. The vast majority of the so-called international order is working fine. I mean, airplanes are, are... are flying between countries pursuant to international law and communications are working great. And the vast majority of international law and international governance uh, is working great. I mean, there's no doubt that some elements of it are being challenged um, on, on a number of fronts, but whether the order is imperiled, I think, I think, I think the answer is no, it's not imperiled. I think things are changing. And I think they were changing before Trump. It's an interesting question whether Trump is a cause or an effect of the changes. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what I would say in the first instance. I mean, we can talk about particulars like trade or war powers or NATO or certain U.S. rhetoric, but I wouldn't say that the international order is in peril, no. Okay, great. So If I could just say one one point in your question, you said liberal order. And... There is a, a strand of thinking that the liberal international order is uh, under challenge, by which I guess is meant the so-called rules, rules-based international order. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm skeptical of that, too, um, that, it, that it's imperiled. I mean, it's, it's changing. It's changing because a whole bunch of things are changing in international relations now, and Trump is a part of that, but not, I think, um, a huge part of it. Certainly at the level of rhetoric, at the level of verbal attacks on international law and institutions, especially things like NATO and trade agreements, um, the, tr- the Trump administration has been extreme. There's no doubt about that. And that definitely has, in some not, not easy to grasp ways, but it definitely has an impact on how these institutions operate. But um, you know, NATO is still working, and it wasn't working perfectly before Trump. Um, and especially with the trade stuff, uh, you know, it's not like we started having trouble with the WTO. I don't need to tell you this. It's not like the WTO was zooming along wonderfully before Trump came to office. Sure. MPP was in trouble and was rejected by, I think, Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail. Um, NAFTA was widely criticized, and Trump seemed, we don't know what the content, much about the content of the deal yet, but you could argue that whatever renegotiation he made may put NAFTA on a stronger foot going forward. A lot of these things, there's there's no doubt at the level of rhetoric that Trump has had a huge impact. And it's, I think it's hard to assess that impact, but at the level of actual practice, I mean, there's the trade war um, and that's definitely a big deal. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know what it'll do to the global trading rules. Well, maybe we can characterize this as there's more bark than bite. Yeah, uh, the I, think the bark is, I think the bark is very extreme. And the bite, I mean, let's talk about two things where he's had a big impact. The, uh, the Paris Agreement and the Iran deal. Sure. Those are two areas where he's actually trying to tra- change practice and where, where he's trying to opt out of agreements. But those agreements were entered into in an, in an odd way by President Obama without, uh, there's a two very consequential international agreements that he entered into without the consent of the legislature. I argued at the time that he didn't need it as a legal matter, but as a political matter, when you have a hugely consequential commitment like that without securing domestic political consent, it's always going to be uh, a dodgy situation going forward. Trump ran on both of those as part of his campaign. and. So you could say that those reflect the democratic will. I know some will contest that, but I think those are the two areas where he's had, I think, make that, along with trade, where he had the biggest impact. But I wouldn't call that, uh, I don't think that makes the international order imperiled any more than past presidents breaking treaties and breaking international obligations have done so. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this certainly it's not unprecedented. We've, we've definitely, you know, I'm thinking of uh, George W. Bush and the ABM Treaty, uh, obviously Jimmy Carter and the Mutual Defense Treaty with Taiwan. I mean, there are many examples uh, that we can look to in the past that, um, you know, that, that, that are not wildly different than what we've seen now. But I think that the Trump rhetoric is not unrelated to the sharp reaction that the, the, the order is imperiled. He certainly is tacking... I mean, Populism is on the rise globally, and populism is a challenge, I think almost by definition, to liberal internationalism, which is more cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. more elitist. And so I, you know, I think that there are larger trends going on that call these international governance structures into question. There's no doubt about that, but it's very hard to assess the consequences. It's only, you know, we're only a couple of years into it. There's so many different things going on with China's rise with Europe's troubles, um, I, think it's, I think it's very hard to assess the medium-term impact. What about uh, from the perspective of international law specifically? So, you know, we've talked a lot about international institutions and things that are at the interface between law and politics. But if we kind of drill down a little bit more, so John Bolton gave this pretty fiery speech about the ICC, very critical, but again, a lot of things we've heard before. Uh, and I'm not sure that the policy really changed all that much, but I'd be interested in your view on that. Um, do you see this administration as being uh, particularly antithetical to international law, or do you see them as supportive, or where, do, where would you place them on the spectrum? At the level of rhetoric, they're extremely antithetical to international law and institutions. Um, at the level of action, I would say, in terms of violating international law, there hasn't been much of it. I mean, they've all of their treaty withdrawals have been in accordance with the terms of the treaty so far. Um, you know, the closest thing they've come to pretty clearly violating international law was the humanitarian intervention in Syria, which is kind of an odd case uh, because um, that's in international circles seen as a progressive action. Right. And did not get a lot of pushback. Did not get a lot of pushback. Exactly. There, there, are, there are people who claim that the, the immigration orders arguably violated international law, but the first two never really went operative, the really problematic ones. So there's an argument there. And again, there's a, there's a large disjunct between the level of rhetoric and the level of action. There, there's no doubt at the level of action that they are cha- trying to change the priorities of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. international commitments. And that was something Trump campaigned on. And it's, 
it's they're moving in a direction that much of the world is moving to independently. But at the level of you know violating international law, I don't think we've seen a lot of it. No, I agree. I think that uh, this is an example of uh, again more bark than bite, uh, and the the rhetoric is extreme. I mean, I just to take the ICC example, I think Bolton's speech had a number of. Uh, some really extraneous comments, some of which were not very factually based. Uh, but, you know, in the end, we haven't been a party to the ICC. We, we, we fluctuated in our support over time. Right. Uh, and, you know, you saw some of that firsthand. I think certainly yeah. the, second, the, the, the second term of the, of the second Bush administration was a lot more favorable right. towards the ICC. Uh, and maybe we're just going back to where we were in 2000 or 2001. Thank you to our guests, Professor Alvarez and Professor Goldsmith. We'll be following up on the series with episodes discussing significant developments in international law. And if you like the podcast, please look for International Law Behind the Headlines on iTunes. And check out the ASIL website for more news and more resources. 